Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? The UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one half of your hosts for this evening, Gaz, and with me is my good friend Baz. How's it going, Baz? I am your other half. Is that what we're saying now? Basically. That'll start start a D12 rumour table all on its own, won't it? People think we're Bert and Ernie and sleep in the same bed as it is, so we might as well just lean into it now is what I'm thinking. They're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well... That bit of narrative, background that's coming to our story, that's something we try, try and do in games, isn't it? Yeah. That's uh, a little bit of something, one or two throwaway lines there, and that's already got the internet a buzz, I'm sure, when this episode comes out. There'll be all kinds of stories and uh, fan fiction. But um, that's something we can do in games, as opposed to writing 500-page books of lore and then trying to get that background to the table. So... This time, let's uh, have a chat about how we get interesting, cool stories out the table and how do we get them out of the books? Or do we even get things out of the books? Or do we make them for ourselves? Where do we even start? So have you got a good example, Baz, perhaps, of a cool character you've had recently? And you know, how did that come about? Did it come from reading the D&D Player's Handbook? Did it come from a novel you read? Did you just turn up, roll up a character, and then something great came out of it from playing the game at the table? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, it's um, it's really interesting, isn't it, sometimes? I think. I hope it's really interesting. Otherwise, you can switch off now because we're going to talk about it for a while. <laughs> it's really interesting like where the good bits in games come from, isn't it? Because I think you and I have always been invested in let's have a look at the games we play, let's have a look at why we play them, and um, after the session, what were the good bits, what were the not-so-good bits, and, and how can we squeeze more of those good bits out? And it's sometimes hard to find out why stuff works in a role-playing game, isn't it? Mm. there seems to be like an almost a magic element but I think if you really really try and you you build up enough games and enough patterns you can at least find out what your preferences are and I think to your point of like you know nice characters that have come up recently I do have to say some of them just come up from nothing they appear to come out of nowhere I guess like if you're a songwriter you probably get bored with people saying where'd you get your ideas from or (laughs) stuff like that yeah um and you know, and often they'll just say, "I don't know." I keep a notebook beside my bed, and when I have a dream, I wake up and I, I jot it down. <laughs> I've never been able to do that. Or they might say, "Well, I, you know, I observe real life because that's always got the best stories in it, mm. and, uh, and I take elements from that." Or I look at my own history, and there's a little bit of autobiography. Yeah. So, I think usually my favourite characters are a bit of blend of all of those things. There's like a dose of imagination. There's a random element where, you know, maybe I've I've just rolled a high strength score. I mean, that's an old-fashioned way to do anything these days. But, mm. you know, whatever game system it is you play, you might be like going through a life path system or something like that. And that spurs your imagination. And then you've got like, you know, a little bit of autobiography in there too. Because I think very often characters, as much as we say it's a fantasy game, you, you kind of play them a bit like yourself when you're an autopilot, don't you? Yeah. You kind of make the same decisions that they would do and you have the same kind of moral compass or lack of. But I do like, and this goes way, way back to the start of the hobby. I'll answer your question in a minute. I do like those games where you don't really find out until you've played it. Yeah. And originally, like in the old school proper D&D stuff where you rolled up your characters, I have to say most people didn't give their character a name until it got to second level. Mm. We were fighter number four, maybe at his most base. And, and you know, we I guess there was a massive period, it probably still goes on, where people just go, oh, can I just call it Bob? No, you can't. You could do better than that. And, you know, it's... Uh, but it was a fact that you kind of wanted that character to emerge. And I think modernly, the closest relation to that would be the funnel in Dungeon Crawl Classics. Right. Where you start with 12 scrubs, and they get whittled down in a kind of squid game-like fantasy game until you've maybe got one left... Um, your usual example is a squire out of Pendragon. It's normally right. some nomarch who just who elevates themselves above the ranks because of something they did in the game, not because of something you thought of when you were having lonely fun with a character generator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And I think there's there's a lot of games that do things a lot of ways, and and some of them help with that process, and some don't. Mm. So um, at the risk of sounding slightly negative, like Reinquest. Inglarantha, for example, has got a lot of stuff in there, a lot of words, and the starts out as characters with like a bunch of skills and languages and many paragraphs of information about the character. But I don't think it really helps you play the character. 
and I'm not sure what was on those sheets necessarily came out. As at the table when I played it recently at the Kraken, Doc Cowie, I'll give him a, a shout out as his, his first time he's run a game ever, I think. Ever, I heard. Yeah, yeah, I could hear the, the, the birds lifted off in the park, didn't they, when he got his GM screen out. It's good that he's now retirement age. He's finally got around to running a game, so it's pleasing that that's happened. He's probably got more time now. But one of the bits of feedback I gave about the starter set, or perhaps if he ran it again for someone else, was make simpler characters and and just put down stuff like uh, you're a, a wild tracker as a wolf skin for a cloak. That would be plenty. The paragraphs you get with the the characters as are have like all these place names and peoples and countries and kings and stuff on there. You just don't know what any of it is. Uh, and yeah. I don't get there'll be loads of uh, the Glanther files out there now and kind of like be eager to give me details on all the characters and what it all means and where it all comes from what I'm trying to say is I don't care certainly for a one shot <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't help me uh, make characters and I know quite a bit about Ringquest so it's not like I'm completely oblivious I was just trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who was and thinking this is far too much so what you want from a game I would suggest is some kind of point is to get you going with some cool sounding stuff on there maybe some exotic things some words you don't understand or whatever but then you play to find out mm. a, a contrasting thing I would give as a, an example of a, a game that gave us quite a lot we've just started playing Monster of the Week with one of my mm-hmm. groups and that sets you up very much like other Apocalypse Worlds games where you've kind of got a relation to someone else or, or each other player basically so you kind of like come up with a reason why you know them and that kind of thing uh, and you have some mystical powers or whatever, because it's kind of like Buffy or something like that, I imagine, if you think of that. Except one of you's a vampire and one's Buffy character and one's, I don't know, a ghost or something else. And you're hunting monsters. But even with just that basic uh, startup situation, we're already buzzing about it. And then when we played, uh, certain things came out. So uh, I think uh, some guys tried to beat us up at one point, and my character ended up like dragging someone in the RV mm-hmm. quickly and like sticking him in the shower and then draining of the blood because I'm a vampire. And it's quite a brutal scene. It, it transpired. And after the session, we're doing a, a Spangles and Wangles, as we call them, Stars and Wishes, some people might say, kind of like, your little review. The GM said, like, oh, I, didn't, I didn't really expect your character to be so brutal. And, you know, I said, like, you know what, neither did I when I made him. I had in my head, like, mm. a suave vampire who keeps it on the down low and, you know, maybe seduces people into sucking the bottom of like. But it just transpired in gameplay that it was something completely different. And I'm sure the next three or four sessions will continue to develop all the other characters as well as mine as well. And that's that's really cool stuff. Right? That's that's where it comes from. But Monster of the Week doesn't really have a setting apart from a touchstone. I've imagined it's something like Buffy, is what I would say. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting having virtually no background apart from some pop culture media kind of, kind of stuff to look at or you know hundreds of pages of Glorantha knowledge that the one with the least amount of background stuff to go on Gave us, gave me anyway, the most at the table, mm. which I, I think it's a, it's almost like an inverse proportion. Like the more stuff you have to learn beforehand, like the less you'll get out of your character at the table sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's a uh, uh, the, the theorists call it emergent play, don't they? Stuff that comes yeah. out in the game itself, which which sounds like so obvious. We shouldn't have to have a podcast about it. That you need to play to find out what happens. <laughs> but realistically, I think you know we've all been in situations before where we. We want to get into something. We we're, were sort of idly browsing the shelves of drive-through or a, an actual game store, or some company releases a new setting or a reboot of an old setting. And you think, yeah, yeah, I fancy a bit of that. And I think RuneQuest is a pretty good example of people thinking, oh, I might have a crack at Glorantha. I've not really tried that, or I haven't tried it in ages. I'll, I'll jump onto this little access point. In my case, it would usually be something like a re-release of Eberron, which seems to come around every three or four years sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah. Or a re-release of D&D, for that matter, that seems to come around remarkably quickly these days, and police are getting younger as well. And um, I feel like there's only so many ways you can pitch something, certainly if it's a revision. And the thing that would excite me about an Eberron game now is I've, I, is I've already sunk the cost. I've already learned it. Mm. But if I hadn't, if I hadn't, and I wanted to run it, it does, It seems like a lot of homework to be able to get a game up and running. Yeah. It seems like an awful lot of reading. And I know that people will now be screaming out as they're walking their dogs and listening to their podcast in the privacy of their own lives. They'll be going, oh, but you just start in a village and that's all you do. You, do, you don't have to worry about all of that stuff. Well, I don't, know, I don't worry about it, but the fact that it's there and I've spent 40 quid on the book means I'm likely to look at it, aren't I? <laughs> you, you feel like you want to. <laughs> and it gets a little bit onerous. Mm. So... I think 
with Eberron, is, is it like a really cool example of, if, for those who don't know, it's a D&D setting, uh, came out in 3rd edition, so it's still around, and um, and it's been rebooted more than once, and it's kind of a kitchen sink, Is it does a bit of everything. And it's kind of, I, I guess, classic in that it's a hardback book, usually many hardback books, but you've got this great big world divided up into countries and continents, and there's players and factions and monsters and so on, and there's like the icy bit and the deserty bit, and the halfling bit, and so on. And it's all extensively detailed. Extensively. Mm-hmm. But that, and, it, and it's all connected up by railways, and it's an exciting read, and it's an exciting world. But then I was thinking, how much do you actually know about, like, you know, the town up the road in your own real life, realistically? You know, even within a 20 mile radius of, of me, and I can drive, and I've, you know, been around the country a bit, I don't really know what's going on over there at any one time. And in that kind of faux medieval setting, are they really going to have the slightest clue what's happening with you know the the elves and the Kalasar and everything that's on the other side of the world? Probably not. So that kind of local feeling is probably a good way to get into a game to start small and so on. Mm-hmm. But it's just hard to ignore the weight of canon that you pick up. Like if you want to play a Star Wars game, you kind of have to start making lists, don't you? What's in, what's out. Whereabouts are we? Not quite what year is it, but you know you have to like set some ground rules. Let alone you want to play in something um, Simbaroon, for example, from Free League. Uh, by all accounts, a very nice setting, and I've certainly skimmed enough of it to agree that that looks kind of dark and atmospheric and so on. But I, but it's also dense. Yeah. I find that kind of stuff dense, and that may be on me and you, mate. Then maybe it's on the GM. But seeing as we GM a lot. I find those things quite intimidating to launch a game off of. Yeah, and there's kind of there's, there's a couple of problems, aren't there? Like the first one is you as a gem having to consume it all, yeah, and then fairly represent it to your players to a degree. Uh, how fairly depends. Uh, your glance may vary is one of the mm. phrases these are in quest circles, but in my experience, if you get things wrong, people are eager to tell you about what, what the story really is. So there's a kind of weight of expectation. And then there's how do you deliver that to players as well, because you can't just sit there frothing for an hour about all the cool stuff that you've read. You've kind of got to drip feed it a bit, mm. but not drip feed it so slowly that they get fed up or don't think it's any different than a generic <laughs> fantasy game in Super Broom's case, for example. So, you know, what's different about a RuneQuest village in Glorantha than a Simbaroon village near mm. the Queen's Wood or whatever it's called, a Warhammer village or something like that? They're all different. So you've you kind of got to put some of the some of the things you've learned in there, like what's different about it, but it's it's small amounts, I think, and like how much do you need to know before you can start putting that into the world? And mm-hmm. then you've, there's a consideration as well. My mind's going in several directions now. In terms of how much are you, how flexible you're going to be in changing that for your table, for your group mm-hmm. of players, and like the game you're having compared to mm-hmm. what other people might be playing, because. I think we've discussed many times that designers are quite happy once they've given you their books, they're your books, and you do what you want with them. But as you said, once you spend 40, 50 quid in a hardback, you kind of want to use the information that's in mm-hmm. the hardback. Otherwise, you feel like you're wasting, not wasting your money, but it feels like a bit of a waste in some respect that you're not getting the most out of it, or you're perhaps being um, inefficient. Maybe that's a better word for it. Yeah. Or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm kind of always reminded when we're getting into a deep setting preferably with some incredibly generous and charitable GM who says like, can we play this game? I've just got it. It's uh, it's really cool. And they give you the elevator pitch and you go, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. We'll play that for a few weeks and see how it goes. And um, with some GMs, it's quite obviously quite setting heavy. And those first couple of sessions can be quite a lot of box text that's being read at you. Mm-hmm. And it feels a little bit sometimes like when a friend sort of like, well, not a friend, it probably wouldn't be a friend, it'd be a colleague, no doubt, sidles up to you while you're queuing for coffee and says, here, check this video out, and they kind of put their phone under your face. Uh, yeah. And you, you go, oh, okay. And you start watching it, and it's no more than 30 seconds before it just feels awkward. Hmm. And, you, and you're thinking, Am I, do I have to watch all of this? Are we stuck here now? <laughs> and it may even be entertaining, but you're thinking, this is, I've, I had other things to do, and I'm sure this is really interesting for you. And your mate is, your colleague is looking at you, and you, you start exaggerating reactions. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that is quite good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then checking your watch mentally. And that's what you get with big box text. It's like, I know you like this, GM. You love this. Otherwise, you wouldn't have pitched it. And this is probably dead important stuff. But I'm sitting here passively listening. And I'm kind of 
I am kind of t- taking notes, but you lost me with the, the second generation of elves. Mm. And I, I'm probably not coming back from that. And it's like, you know, regular people with board games always say, don't they? Well, can't we just start playing and, and we'll pick it up as we go along? Yeah. They always say that. And I get, I get a bit irritated. It's like, no, you can't just start playing. I've got to explain to you what the hand size you can have <laughs> and, and how this works. This is, you can't, this is a monopoly. Come on. It's complicated. But with, with RPGs, surely you should be able to just let's go and find out. Find out through stuff happening. Um, find out who your character is by putting yourself and getting into situations that tell you what your character is. Mm. Do you do you take the prisoner alive or dead? Do you rob the church when no one's looking? You know that's really simple stuff, but that's going to tell you more about your character as you start to make those decision points yeah. than sitting there tapping your pencil against your teeth trying to wonder how you fit into the fifteenth Morakamp Wars that you didn't even notice the first fourteen had happened. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's there's a there's a balance, isn't there? There's kind of how much do you need to know so that you can just start playing mm. in a way to an extent. So like one one of the games that I think a lot of people rub against wrong, not not wrong as incorrect, but like find it a struggle, is something like Legend of the Five Rings, which mm-hmm. is kind of like pseudo feudal Japan, China, and various other countries from the east. Because it's like what what can I do? And that that can lead to like not finding out who play because people don't want to do anything in case they do it wrong. Mm. So the, there is, with certainly some settings particularly, there has to be some kind of front-loading of, like, what's the scope? Okay, I'm a samurai, but what does that mean? Mm. Like, can I boss people about? What happens if I kill a villager? Is that all right? Does someone get upset? And we're not supposed to kill anyone. What happens if a different lord that's not my lord tells me to do something? Then what do I do? So there can be a whole bunch of questions that require some front-loading of information. I think that's the tricky balance is working out, like, what what do you say that allows your players to get going without, like you say, drowning them in paragraphs and paragraphs of detail, which they will lose interest in? Uh, and I do myself as a player. Like, if someone speaks for too long and start glazing over, I can't help it. Uh, and I think part of that can come from uh, clever adventure design or, as a GM, setting up scenarios so that they start showing things around the world. You'd be a bit a tour of the world kind of thing. So, I mean, like back in the day when we were young, there used to be a lot of splat books for things, as they're called, or like, you know, uh, White Wolf particularly made a lot of money off producing, say, a vampire. And then there'd be seven clans, so you get a clan book for each of the clans. And then they'd produce another book about the Sabbat, and then there'd be a bunch of clans in that, and then a bunch more clan books about that. And then that, that was fine in terms of like uh, getting your monthly book and getting new information, things to do. But uh, in terms of usefulness when you jump in halfway through and want to play a character and there's now 73 options and you're not sure what a good one is or which book it is, is or if people are using options from all over the place that can get really um, it's just confusing or, or as a GM sometimes you don't feel like you have all the answers like if you're halfway through the clan box and someone wants to play one of the other clans they're kind of going off like a half empty sheet because there's going to be loads of cool options they can't use yet until your campaign's several weeks old so that's quite weird but it did work with things like, I think Trinity was the good example, or Aeon as it was originally called, in that it gave you a bit of a tour of the solar system, which is like a sci-fi based game with uh, psionics, sort of like uh, mini superheroes, I guess you'd call it. And although the clan books came out sort of like periodically, uh, the adventures sort of like came out in a, a sequence as well, and it gave you the option to go to the moon to find out what that was like, and then to Mars, and then various places on Earth to find out what different factions, then the aliens came into it and stuff. So that was a, a good uh, long-form way of doing it, but I think you can you can condense all that down for individual games. If, for example, you were going to DM some Eberron for me, I think you're right. You would start off with like just a village or whatever, and why it's different in Eberron than somewhere else. Maybe the steam jacks around or whatever they're called in the Eberron universe, and then we might have to go on a train somewhere. Like, wait, there's mm-hmm. trains in this setting, but you don't need to know that on session one, do you? You can find that in session three when you go into a different place via the medium of a train, which you now realise exists. Yeah. I think so. I think that um, D&D 5e is an example of a game that that said when it came out that the exploration was going to be one of the pillars of the game. And I suppose it's debatable about how much it is a pillar of the game, but I definitely was excited by that concept because I quite like poking at the edges of the known map in any game. And um, what's over that hill? What's around that corner? What happens if we talk to that person? What happens if we burn that to the ground? You know, and... um, that could be 
it could be a physical location where you go out and explore the world or it could be something a bit more personal like relationship dynamics whatever it is that you're doing um, and as much as I like going into dungeons and looting them um, or going on shadow runs and looting things it's kind of nice to have the world revealed to you as you go mm-hmm. much like those kind of prestige TV series I suppose where um, where people say oh the, the fourth season when they when they left the city or when they started to explore the world as often as that can sometimes jump the shark at least they're pushing the boundaries and still trying to find some new and interesting locales and things to keep everybody engaged because I don't think you'd ever want to be completely static in a role-playing game but nor do you want to be so front-loaded with stuff that you just can't get started so you need to be reasonably mm. agile I think as a GM and as a player um, but get playing as quick as you can yeah yeah, definitely. We kind of drift into GM territories we tend to do when we start mm. out talking about players. So, so we'll, we'll kind of flip between the two, I think. But one of the, like, the sort of media things I was thinking about then when you started mentioning that was, um, I think it was Angel rather than Buffy, like the, the sort of spin-off series. Yeah. But the um, turned out to be antagonist, I think, but it's Wolfram and Hart, a, a solicitor's firm or a company or something, and they turned out to be baddies or there's something shady going on. But you didn't know anything about them when it started out. Mm. You know, you just like they got introduced to one point, it's like they're just this... They're obviously um, working for the bad guys in some way, or facilitating the bad guy stuff, and that's all you needed. You didn't need to know like where it came from, and, and there's reveals over the seasons about it's Wolf Ram and Hart, as in three separate things, and there's a whole lore around it. But like that stuff that not even the GM necessarily needs to have planned out first. You can just kind of go, well, I want some shady villains who are like, or not the actual villains perhaps, but just a shady setup that's kind of mm. facilitating the bad guys to do the work. So I'm going to call them this. And then you don't have to think it out for yourself so much. And if the players push against it, then you know it's a good, a good feature that you can keep in the game. And if uh, a player wants to bring in their own stuff about, like, oh yeah, um, one of them kidnapped my sister, or whatever it might be, just like chuck a thing in as a bit of play development, then you can kind of work with that and and move it forward. And if the players aren't interested, you you forget them and bring something else in that they might be interested in. But that's that's a way of like GM and player working together. It's kind of if you want melodramatic hooks for your player. Uh, for your character rather as a player you can ask the gem like what's the you know what is the sort of antagonist that would do this or who's a likely candidate and you can kind of work mm-hmm. together can't you jim but like, breaking the fourth wall i think is something we don't do quite enough sometimes like maybe in play i don't want to see it so much mm. but certainly between sessions and stuff like that you can kind of set things up to kind of go this is the sort of thing i want my character to do or the stories i want them to be involved in and give the gem like tee them up so they can start introducing things that will then allow you to bounce off them or, or play against them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, your mention of Angel, which, <laughs> spoiler alert, by the way, can you spoil something that's like 30 years old? I think it's you just did. your limitations now, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Same writer, funnily enough. I think, like, you know, the, 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 my go to for how to introduce a relatively complex universe and set of characters would be Firefly. Mm. Oh, and, and actually, Serenity, if you just want to look at one movie that does it really well. You've yeah. got quite a big cast of characters, easily the equal of a PC party in any game. You've got a universe that is, you could just go, it's space. But it clearly isn't, is it? There's much more to it than that. And everything's just sort of dripped in at, at relatively quick speed as well. It's not very long at all before the action is starting. And yeah, there'll be flashbacks and stuff like that, which does help colour in your character. And I think flashbacks are definitely an underexplored piece of the game. Um, I think, you know, just as an aside, as a flashback even, if you've got three pages of background that you want to bring into your character, well, we knock yourself out, but how about you just reveal like you know a couple of sentences of that background in every session? And you can do it all in flashback. Spread it out a little bit. Yeah. But you know, Joss Whedon was really, really good at putting those kind of settings and characters together in a really dynamic situation that certainly doesn't overload. You can just chuck popcorn down your neck and watch it and not think too hard if you want, or you can like really squint at it and try and understand the dynamics. Then, and, and those sort of prestige TV or uh, cinema things, there's a lot of tricks that we can take from those. The notion of a pilot episode, for example, would be akin to our session zeros, wouldn't it? Mm. Although often our session zeros are done in silence over the internet. As people have their heads down, you're looking at the top of their thinning hair as they write on something in the distance. <laughs> and there probably should be more Q&A and more, more interaction happening at that level so that when you've got, to your example, you're playing... Savage Worlds, and you've taken a minor enemy as a hindrance, you should be looking up and going, well, who could that be? Have you got anything in your setting that would be really good for me in this one? Or is that something you want, you want me to come up with so that you can put it in your setting? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All that stuff. Yeah, we've, in our most regular group, we still have that problem. We, we started again recently, but like the gem was quite clear. We're going to make characters next Tuesday, and then we turned up and one of the one of the characters. Well, in fact, two of the players already made characters. So that's that's now <laughs> session zero. Wastelands. You need to you need to unmake yeah. those characters, and then we need to start again. So, so yeah, we can kind of fit together. Good. As a spectator sport, RPGs have always surprised me, but I still don't think people want to watch other people generate characters. Not really, but that that's where something like Monster of the Week or a lot of the Apocalypse World based games or Forged in the Dark, or even stuff like the Free League games where they have like just the set of lines saying what do you think about this other character or mm-hmm. someone's betrayed you, who was it? And you know, you're in love secret love with someone, who is it? Those kind of just even doing that bit kind of sets you up and that's the kind of the firefly bit to kind of relate it to that, kind of like, you mm-hmm. know, there's something going on between the courtesan and the captain of the ship. We don't need to know what the full backstory is between that. We just need to know there's like a tension between them. That kind of thing. Uh, and you can set all them up in advance and then dig into, like you say, the flashbacks. Even for like one shots and other games now, I'm a big fan of doing flashbacks. I keep them short, but get to action and then flashback to get some um, meaning to it, which is what yeah. a, a device that using TV shows quite a lot of the time. So you can start a one shot game, for example, with a fight. Mm hmm. Then you flash back going like, okay, so why are you on this mission? Once you've got a bit of context or you know who the bad guys are because some of them have just attacked you or whatever it might be. And that way it kind of like stops players kind of going like, oh, why? I don't know, I don't trust him. I don't, oh, he's a thief. I don't know if I'm in the same party as him. You can avoid all that by jumping straight into like, well, you're already doing this thing together. We know that. We've established that in the fiction. Now we're going to flash back to why you're on that mission and what you think of the other characters. And I think that just that creates kind of more buy-in. I mean, hopefully you've got players who want to buy into that sort of thing anyway, but... It's another good technique, I think, that you can steal from kind of TV shows to kind of go, here's something kill happening, and then we'll slow the pace down and like fill in some backstory afterwards. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good techniques. And and I think as a player, that kind of frees you up a little bit as well from having to do competitive character building in a session zero where you're thinking like, oh God, I better be cool, better be quirky, better have a good name. And it's pressure sometimes, isn't it? Because... Because <laughs> the first thing that happens in any game is the GM says, "Would you all like to introduce yourselves?" And it's like one of those works meetings, isn't it? Where, 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 they, where they go, "We're going to do some role play," and you go, "I bet it's not going to involve polyhedral dice. This is going to be absolutely awful." <laughs> um, so yeah, if you're going to introduce your character, you're suddenly under the spotlight, and you don't want to be first, don't want to be last, and uh, and and then if you go behind our mate Bez, it's like he takes all the wind out your sails because he's just got some masterclass on characters in under a minute. And you're looking down at Bob the fighter on your on your notepad and thinking, "Oh Christ, this isn't really <laughs> going to cut the mustard, is it?" So it's nice to take the pressure off if you can just get into it and start rolling some dice straight away, and and then you know you get asked micro questions along the way. So instead of tell me all about your character as you're like jumping the deep end of the new campaign, it's um it's your round. You've got a gun in your hand. The heavy's coming at you down the corridor at speed. What do you do? And then your answer to that has just started to colour in your character a little bit, hasn't it? And you'll yeah. get asked more important questions than that down the line. And they might be like, you know, what sort of gun is it? And where did you get it from? Does it mean anything to you? And then the player comes back with, oh, no, it's not my gun. I took it off the body of the cop I shot outside. And you think, oh, plot twist. Cool. <laughs> Got to reincorporate this. And then another player goes, hey, my brother Frank was a cop. He does. He's on duty around here. Yeah, about that. And then you've got a campaign in under 20 seconds that the GM didn't have to write down and so on. Reincorporating that stuff is, for me, is the pleasure of emergent play. Mm. And, and it's, the, it's, the thing, it's the thing that role-playing games do that no other medium can do. You can't get that from a novel, novel cinema, video games even. You can't get that, that kind of joint collaboration stuff. And yeah, I suppose it is a bit storytellery. Uh, it is a bit writer's room. And that can make people kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, it just feels uncomfortable. But we don't, we're not talking about like standing up with mad improv skills. It's just like, no. you know, just decide something. You can't get it wrong. Just have a go. What colour is your coat? Um, blue? Cool. Move on. You can tell if people don't really want to go, well, let me tell you about my coat. Because that's just as bad a thing if you've got like 15 minutes of backstory on the size of your coat and where you got it from. You know, keep it short, keep it simple, but find out in play. Yeah, for sure, and I, I think that's a, that's a key point. You uh, or another one I'll, I'll pull out from what you said there is that kind of if it's interesting, like as sometimes I see quite a lot of gems. Certainly, if you go into the more kind of forge the dark sort of world of games, 
mm. but kind of try and ask the players everything about everything. And like you, the players aren't there to tell you what your barman's name is and if they're married mm-hmm. and what, mm-hmm. where they, why they bought the pub in the first place. Like having the ability to get the players to contribute something doesn't mean that that absolves you as a gym of producing any information yeah. or like keeping the game consistent or doing the reincorporation job that you're supposed to be doing. Like, like if it's a trivial thing, stop asking the stop asking the players what it is. There's no need yeah. for that. Yeah. But if it's about the player's character, if it's something that sounds like it might be interesting, then you've got more leeway, I think, to start trying to draw those things out. You know, if, mm. even in D and D, when you've got something like, I think we did it when we played a one or two shot, and we kind of got like soldiers' background or something, and decided mm-hmm. we're in the same regiment or something yeah, like that. That's right. So, like straight away as a gem, you can have like somebody from that regiment turn up in the session. That's just like easy. What he needs help, or he's become a badden, and someone needs to take him down. He's your old sergeant. He saved your life back at wherever it was, but now he's turned to banditry. And he's causing people all kinds of problems. There's a, there's just bits on the character sheet, like even say like because it like D and D doesn't make a big deal of it, but maybe the one D and D will. But you've kind of got a background and a heritage and all these other things. There's like four or five little. One-liners that you've got mm-hmm. your characters on, they don't really see enough play. Mm. But I think it's it's quite easy for players and gems, if you want to, to kind of get hold of those and run with them and start making more out of them. And I think that'll give you uh, a more interesting game, a more uh, emergent background and backstory in your game than everybody reading the Abraham book, for example. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point to just sort of like build on there, mate. So. D&D, we were talking about inspiration in our last show, weren't we, as part of the, the one D&D thing. And um, in 5e, inspiration is regained from playing up to those uh, beliefs, instincts, traits, those personality things that you've just described. Now, I must have generated hundreds of D&D 5 characters over the, the years of its existence and, and stuff like the computer apps to help you do that, make that a trivial thing. Without doubt, I'm, I'm going to say that the majority of people, me included, just hit the give me the random personality traits button when that comes around. There's not many to choose from. It's usually six for each one. So you, you might choose that you're a scholar and you'll get a drop-down menu of the six kind of things that you can get and some of them are attached to your alignment. And they're just one-liners and they're obviously generic, obviously. But even I don't bother, and I like to think I bother quite a lot with games, mm. but I just, just hit the button and it generates all of these things. And... Um, and they don't come out in play. And they should. They really should. In fact, they should always be the only thing that you know about other characters rather than knowing its numbers or so on or its proficiency bonuses and that sort of thing. You should know after a few games what that kind of decision that rogue would make when if their player doesn't show up that night. It should be kind of obvious because they, they always hit those kind of personality keys. Mm. And loads of games, in fact, almost every other game does a far better job of personality mechanics than 5e does. But, you know, 5e has them, and the people who say you can't role-play in D&D just aren't looking closely enough because all the prompts are there, but I think the scenarios and the game style doesn't encourage you to bring those out at the table. So it's not play that emerges. It's submerged underneath <laughs> the combat system, the mechanics, etc., etc., yeah. And that's fine. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's absolutely there. And I think, I think games like D&D take on a completely different tone if when you're asked what do you do, you look to your personality traits before you look to your equipment list. Yeah, definitely. I think you, you kind of want a, a shtick for yourself, don't you? You kind of want an idea about what yeah. your character is like. Is he like Aragorn or is he more like Gimli or something? Mm-hmm. That, but that can be a decent enough starting point. And then you can leave yourself up on questions as you go along. You've got me thinking about media and stuff now. I'm thinking all kinds of life films and TV series. <laughs> I've just seen like Alien 3, is it? I think the third one, they're on a prison planet. And Charles Dance's character's helping Ripley out. And she sort of says, like, oh, how did you end up here? Hmm. And that, in my mind, was a great, like, if this was a role-playing game, and that was one of the PCs and the Germans says, so how did you end up on this prison planet? That's like a really cool question to ask. Yeah. And he came up with like his reason for why he was there and stuff. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, I guess looking out for things like that as well, to, to encourage players, if we're looking at switching back to GM's dance again, he's like trying to look for the interesting questions about the character, the ones they haven't answered yet, as well as from a player point of view, like things you want to bring up. Yeah. I think if everybody around the table is looking for something that's interesting, and, and the thing we talk about occasionally as well, which doesn't get enough plays, player to player. 
So in those little downtime moments when you want to speak in character, you could ask another character from your character about a thing that was interesting or that happened. That's something that's um, in Agon. They have that in the kind of like the voyage phase in between each island. There's a bit where you have to ask another character a question about themselves, and then you get a bond with each other. And I think that's a perfectly decent mechanic. You could implant that in D and D, couldn't you, straight away? Just yeah, because you start with no inspiration. So like everybody has to ask somebody a question about another character's background or something on their sheet. Right, there's your inspiration because you asked yes. the question. Yes. Um, oh, I've got so many things to bounce off there. So right, right, really quickly, and this is throwing shade against a venerable institution. This is. <laughs> This is me. Get, this is me reacting badly with my hot take against an article in White Dwarf from the mid eighties. It's about time this was addressed. <laughs> this is about about time. <laughs> it was about how to run really interesting traveller campaigns. Right. Oh, <laughs> TLDR. You can't. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the question address you your letters to was, Matt Stevens. <laughs> oh, seriously? Yeah, we go for it. Whatever. Yeah, I'm not scared of you, you weaklings. Um, my social standing is so much higher. Uh, let's see. Well, what did they say? Oh, yeah, right. And you see, this advice. This, this is pertinent to the current day because I think some games do the thing you've just suggested. So, the, the advice was, when the players are introducing their characters in the, in your new traveller campaign, um, ask them about their stateroom, which I believe is traveller talk for your bedroom on a spaceship. And when they've told you what the contents of their stateroom are like, you have to do this. Right now, this is advanced GMing here, guys. So you might want to take notes. Ask the characters if they've got a pot plant in their stateroom. If they say yes, just go, okay. If they go no, you go, uh-huh, and pretend to write something down. That's what you do. And that's all it takes, apparently, to get the I'm, players super invested in your game. I'm pretending to write notes down now. <laughs> pretend <laughs> pretend You've got to a write pot plant behind you as well. It's quite I really have, mate. Yeah, I know. I have a pot plant in my stateroom. But so what? So what? And yeah. your point was like you know you've got these you got these games and uh, people have diligently me included read that bit it says oh ask the players get their buy in for stuff all right we go to the pub and order some drinks oh really what's the pub called it's like oh man you're the GM you tell me yeah ah oh, but is it a is it a mysterious pub or a pub with any kind of I have no idea it doesn't matter it doesn't matter so the pot plant doesn't matter. Tell me more about the bloody spaceship, not the plants in it, and don't try and pass it off as like a ah, secret plot time. If only you had, is that the right answer or the wrong answer? The pot plant. Uh-huh. Nobody cares. So, ask interesting questions. Definitely, White Dwarf was wrong, and it generated a whole bunch of like weird ass games where you have to like play weird personality quizzes with the, with the GM. Um, what were all the other points I was going to make? Ah, yes, Agon. I was going to ask you about Agon because that's a game that you have played far more than I have. Um, I've kind of bounced off it because I just didn't quite get to grips with it. It's definitely a game you need to play to understand, I think, which might mm-hmm. go to our point of emergent play. But I, I remember when Agon hit, it was about the same time as I was getting quite excited about a fresh D&D hardback setting. You could tell how this story is going to end. And it was the uh, it was the Theros campaign setting taken yeah. from Magic. Uh, Magic the Gathering is one of their settings and it's their take on a kind of a Greek universe with meddling gods and an island based culture and there was a whole lot of stuff going on and um, I was eager for that book because I thought yeah this is really going to sync with a few of the things that I like in fantasy gaming and we're going to get to the stage where we're looking for a new campaign to get I, I, I just I just never got deep into it it started flicking really early on I was going through a list of 16 different gods or however many there are and just thinking okay these are all honestly these are all interesting this isn't a bad read it's all fine but without a game to play it just feels like I'm reading a tourist book like the rough guide to Tokyo and I've got no plans to go to Tokyo Hmm. Um, and it's not inspiring me to go there and at the same time I know that you were playing Agon and while I was researching a Theros game you got about three or four sessions in and, and it almost rinsed the game. So what, what was the experience there without having, I presume, there was no big read aloud at the start of your campaign or buy-in for it? No, it's um, there are opposite ends. and It's a, a good metaphor for what we've been talking about. Because I played a, a short campaign of the Theros setting as well, oh. as it happens, uh, so I can compare the two. And there was, there's a lot of stuff in there, like you say, but I was... I was less interested in the Theros setting than I was in looking at some of the magic cards. 
mm. which is we've not got into talking about Netrunner yet, but I might as well move on to that. But like, <laughs> like Netrunner has a really good uh, implied setting, just from one line is on cards to the odd picture, mm. and you kind of like you piece the world together in your head and kind of what it's like. And I bought the world book for Android Netrunner, and that was I didn't get through it because I just didn't find it as interesting because it wasn't delivered as nicely. Interesting. Yeah, so Theros, there was stuff going on, but there's too many names. Some of them are similar to the Greek ones, some weren't. So we're trying to, like, part of the time, we're trying to work out what the things were we were talking about. Mm. And there was stuff going on in the background that by the end of it, I didn't care about anymore. Because <laughs> uh, I, I was interested in what we were doing and, like, these like machinations of the gods and things just didn't seem to impact us. So, yes, it was a lot of wasted words as far as I'm concerned. Whereas Agon, there's very little set up. Each island's, like... Four pages of, I don't know whether it's quite A5, but it's like kind of digest size book. And one of them is a picture. So really, it's three pages. <laughs> of stuff. It's like certainly like two sides of A4 would cover all the information you get. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the stuff on there is uh, questions. Uh, so it doesn't say that uh, on Nemos that this person killed the prince or something like that. What it tells you is the prince is dead. And the king and queen are upset about it, and they're dealing with it differently. And mm-hmm. there's this cult going on, and there's this Pankratian thing happening, and some other stuff. And it throws you in there, and you as players sort of like try and work out what the answer is. And also, as GM, as the game's going on, you're kind of answering some of your own questions or asking the players for direction on what they think's occurring, and then kind of like reincorporating stuff. So, a lot of the fun of that game actually came out from not knowing as a GM how the scenario is going to go at the start, like genuinely, and just having. Uh, as some other games tell you to have, like just have locations and encounters and events rather mm. than a plot per se, and uh, it was kind of how the characters grew. And again, it was very much like there's there's not a lot of difference in characters. You kind of start with a D6 and everything apart from one domain as a D8, so that, <laughs> like mechanically they're very similar. Everyone's got a D6 name die. There's not a lot of different things you can do. But as things grow and some stats go up and down a little bit, we we got to know that. Uh, the clear-voiced character was clearly all about talking and, and abhorred fighting and violence. And the character who was like quite martial was reckless and just used to run headfirst into things like without thinking and, you know, was beautiful but stupid. Uh, but all these things just came out through actually playing the game and none of that was in the book. The book just describes a way of playing that helps all this stuff come out, basically. So it didn't have to be about Greek stuff necessarily, but... To go to one of our earlier points, if you say Star Wars or you say Mythic Greece or something like that, then people have got most of the setting in their head already or an idea about it. Mm-hmm. And then they can concentrate on the cool stuff that's happening at the table. So one of the, the shout-outs I'll give to the scribe, should always get a scribe out, a shout-out for this campaign, but he was just a, a one-liner because I think the second island, the, the party failed and the giant crushed two islands and they went away in ignominy and it was, you know, sad faces all around. So while they were trying to like tell the stories of the greatness, the scribe was kind of like writing the real story of what happened to make them sound like idiots. And then he just kept recurring because it was just easy to bring him back in. And one time they put on a play with some of the crew pretending to be the, the, the heroes with like a mop on the head and various other things. And like all this stuff came from literally nothing. It was just a one liner in one session. And just through reincorporation, and keep hitting some old beats and mm-hmm. uh, callbacks to previous things that had happened. We created a really cool setting that felt a lot more in keeping with the themes of like tragedy and mythic sort of like storytelling and stuff like that rather than playing Theros for example which was cool I had lots of like nodly bits and tweedly bits to have a go at and things to push and press and ask about but a lot of it was meaningless to us mm-hmm. and I think that's what gives you that's what puts you in the setting is knowing that you have meaningful choices or that your characters have a place in the world yeah agency is important isn't it and agency mm-hmm. goes to one of the early things you said agency has got to be incorporated into scope. So you've got to be able to do stuff, otherwise you have no story generating if you're not able to do anything. And you need that scope to know that you're doing stuff within the broad confines of the setting. Um, and the confines don't have to be confining. <laughs> but you know, if you're playing Samurai, you're right, you need to know the basics of what you're expected to behave like or what's unacceptable, really. Or mm. I suppose just off tone what's you know what doesn't fit the genre doesn't fit the groove that you're playing but if you've got those two things you're ready aren't you and i think ideally games that can get you a sense of what you can do and how far you can go is a pretty good starting point and it's probably more relevant 
than the weight of silver coins in that setting. Yes. Yeah, for absolutely sure. And I think if you if you're GMing, you can you can kind of front load some of this as well. Well, not front load it. You can do it as it happens. Yeah. So if you're sat down in I don't know Lord Ishido's palace, and he's saying such a body's accused of murder uh, because this general says so, and you know for a fact his players like it, it wasn't him because you saw the real murderer who got away. Like how how do you you can't just point at the the other general and tell those in the shield that he's wrong or he's a liar or he's just because of station but you can, you can tell that to the players at that moment they don't need to know in advance about how law works and how the testimony of a high ranking samurai counts more than physical evidence or something like that mm-hmm. you can just say it at the point it's happening like you know he's lying through his teeth but you know it'd be a terrible like breach of etiquette to do something about it now if you, if you said it so you have to find another way around it and that way, if players still want to like just gob off or whatever and do something that's a breach of the cultural rules, you've told them so that they're doing it knowingly. So you still have the agency if you want to to act against type or do the thing you're not supposed to do. Mm. But in that instance, you're doing it because you're making a conscious choice rather than accidentally bumbling into some do something stupid in the setting, mm. even though you didn't know it would be. So yeah, you can, you can have agency and you can tell you can guide people on it, but you don't have to tell them everything first. You can tell right. them what they need to know at the time and then let them make the choice and reap the consequences of their actions. And I think similarly, I'm going to call out one of my favourite kind of games for, for the pitches the balance right for me, um, would be 13th Age, um, which has got a few, uh, it's got a few little techniques that are very portable into any other sort of F20 game. And I won't go into detail because we've probably done it before and there are other people who can tell you more about it. But you've got your one unique thing about your character, which is your single line, your single phrase, that makes you your character. And it isn't your class, your race, your backpack. It's going to be something like, I don't know, it could be something very basic. The, the classic is Bastard Son of the Emperor. There's a lot of those apparently rolling around in the 13th age world. Or it could be something incredibly exotic, but it's basically your one-liner. I mean, you could be a, a wooden zombie uh, that's a manifest spirit of hell. Now, that's probably pushing it a little bit far for my taste, but that's what Session Zero does, is you all just talk about, like, what's your concept? Best ranger in the world? That'll do. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Demon haunted bow? That's better. And you can just have a bit of back and forth about those things. And with a similar way, its skill system is based on, it's called backgrounds in that game. Its skill system is you've got some points to scatter about, but actually you write in the name of the skills yourself. And you wouldn't have archery plus three. No, 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 no. You would have um, captain of the helms guard. Yes. which I've literally just made up. And I don't even know what they are. I don't know what the Helmsguard are. And, and it can be as simple as that. And you don't have to know, like the GM in your example, you don't have to know what the Helmsguard is, as long really as it passes the rule of like, you know, um, nice polite nods around the table. Like, oh, cool. Then <laughs> it goes on your sheet. And hopefully it will come up. It should come up. That it should be incorporated into the game. That at some point, probably not in the first two minutes, you will be offered the chance to colour in a little bit about what the Helm's Guard are, or you've passed that on to another player, or the GM is going to be respectful and say, like, do you want me to like knock knock up an organisation or sub something in for that? So because I already had, you know, I already had a, a, a unit of like uh, winged lancers that I had in my campaign, but we could call them Helm's Guard, and then you've got a connection. It's like, yes, please, that sounds great. Now I don't have to do any thinking. Or you might be, no, 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 no. I've got ideas, but I want to bring them out in the play. Mm -hmm. That's nice. And that's really good stuff because you don't have to be a a world-building genius from the off. It takes off some of the pressure because, of course, you can, if you want, just put soldier as your skill set. That's fine. And then maybe later on in flashback, when you've got into your groove, you do become captain of the 15th Wing Lancers and so on. Um, and that all of those things are available all the time. And that's so portable into loads of different games. Um, just because your game might say alchemy is a skill, wouldn't it be better if just in brackets in pen on your character sheet you wrote Master Alchemist of Bravos? Wouldn't that be better? Plus 14? What's Bravos? I've no idea. I just nicked it from Game of Thrones. But <laughs> whatevs, you know? That's fine, isn't it? And, um, and then... As a table, you're starting to work on these these things and, and the setting is growing around your characters. And this is the key point for me, mate. If the setting isn't interested in your characters, 
if the GM has to be a fan of characters, otherwise you've got no chance. If the setting isn't interested in your characters, then you're just tourists at best, or bit players. You want to be Frodo in Order of the Rings. You don't want to be that Numenorean guard who didn't have any lines. Mm. You, of course you do. Unless you just want to be a spectator in the game. If you want to be involved, you want to have some agency, then the setting has to has to respect you back. So if you say, I'm a, I'm a member of this guild of thieves who only work out of the northern city of Iopos, then that Iopos has to exist, and there have to be people there who've heard of you, and, and, and people that you've robbed in the past, and so on. And that's not onerous for that to happen. That's game content generating inspiration. It makes the games for you. Yeah, no, entirely agree. I remember in um, in Earthdome, as you mentioned, Iopos, <laughs> <laughs> I think probably to war, there's... Uh, when there's a behemoth or whatever, a flame castle lands in the middle of a, a bar set. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the Eighth Legion or something, the troops mm-hmm. are called, they're with it. There's no other detail. It doesn't tell you anything about mm-hmm. them. It doesn't tell what the uniforms are. Doesn't tell, but that's immediately got me thinking about who are they then? People are like, oh, are they, uh, are they well renowned? I thought, well, they are now. Yes. Yeah. yeah, now you mention it, they're an elite unit and uh, all wear red bandanas and uh, some other stuff are made up on the spot. And, Furiously scribbled in the break, so I won't forget it. Uh, but like that's that's one of the things to give like RuneQuest and Glanther some love. That's what I used to like back in the day when it was RuneQuest Two. Is he got uh, gems of ideas everywhere? Like I didn't really know what Rob Cradle was or you know anything like that. And the, the walls were built by giants, but they haven't been seen for like hundreds of years, and they're now falling apart. But like people have like dug into them and made houses and things. There's just loads of luck, and there was there's thousands of these like little nuggets of information, such cool stuff everywhere. Mm. and that was a springboard for imagination and that's when it was a lot cooler uh, and I know some people just want more and more lore but that's made it a lot less interesting for me that you've kind of got this Atlas guide now that's nailed down every village and town in the entirety of Genitella like, I don't I don't want to know all that detail, and certainly not in advance I want mm. to find it out as we go along so yeah I think um, what we've, we've mentioned in various different ways now is having uh, the germs of ideas, being the captain of the winged lancers or whatever it might be just putting that sort of stuff in there a bit of descriptor just instantly makes it more interesting mm-hmm. and something to get your teeth into mm. it does and, you know have, having enemies as we've mentioned before that should be like a really interesting thing some people like shy away from having disadvantages as well but like if you view picking disadvantages or flaws or what they're called in the game as flags to the gem of things you'll want to come up then you can suddenly look at them in a way as story advantages rather than mechanical disadvantages. It's like, you know, there'll be spotlight time for you, a high, if you can, like, tag these things and kind of go, I want this to be brought in and my character's involved in it, please. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I understand that there's definitely a category of player, and it may even be quite a large category, who who do want to be a bit more casual and just be sit back and be a bit more passive, uh, a bit more of a watcher. Um, and I, I think it's probably fair to say that there will be people who are terrified at the idea of having to be a part-time GM, even if it is only for a few seconds. Um, and I just want to encourage people to just step up and have a go, honestly, and you know, not necessarily going to be judged harshly or anything else like that, because everyone's playing make-believe at the end of the day. But one of the things that will really help is just you know, building a character with gaps in. So... Don't, you don't have to flesh it all out in advance. It's better to build a character with gaps, and it's better to build a setting with gaps, blank spaces on the map that can be filled in. And avoid, I think, some gaming cul-de-sacs. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, a, it's just astonishing how many characters are orphans uh, or have no memory. You know, There's, There was yeah. literally a background in White Wolf, wasn't it? Tabula Rasa, I think it was. You could get some points for that, which meant that you had amnesia and you had no idea who you were. And as exciting as that can be for the GM to go, oh, right, okay, so you're obviously going to be like some kind of super spy who's been brainwashed. Actually, it's just a bloody lazy option, isn't it? It's like, you know, come on, have a go, have a go. And and you can't all be Wolverine in every game you play (laughs) where it's just you, you're totally selfish, you run off on your own, you wear black. Um, Well, what sort of clothes are you wearing? Black. Okay, Uh, what do you do? I stand in the rain. Uh, I've already made it more interesting than many of the answers I've heard. <laughs> Don't, Some know, of the comics I've read. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> you've got to find that middle ground between gaming cul-de-sacs where there's nowhere for anyone to go with it, including you. So Lone Sniper, defy anyone to play that for more than a couple of sessions without thinking, oh, I really wanted to do more than just sit under a bush for four hours and aim at something. 
uh, so, so that's 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 probably not got much juice to it. But equally, you don't need to be some kind of caricature um, of like fifteen characters all welded together, like all of Batman's villains in one character with an equal amount of lore behind them, because it just comes off as a mess. There is absolutely nothing wrong with saying stern fighter. There's nothing wrong at all with saying like educated wizard. It's a start, you know. But then follow the game, and the game will ask you questions, and answer them in an interesting way that's interesting to you and that people can build upon. And I think you've got the essence of a good RPG session in that, because you're building and dropping more seeds in and giving everyone around the table more train track to put down in front of the game. Yeah, and there are multiple ways you can handle it. If you're not that confident about it, you can always come back to people. If someone asks you a question, say, oh, can I tell you next week or mm. something? You know, and then have a, have a week to think about it. Come back. I know one one of our good friends, guy. He's running the game, and he, he apparently gets like emails off uh, one of his players every every session, like between sessions. Although he struggles during the session, he'll then write two pages mm-hmm. that email to guy afterwards. You know, with like all these cool ideas or things he thinks about his character, which is you know cool. But like as guy encourages him to, like we want to get see more of that at the table, arguably. Yeah. But if you're not confident to do it, like in the second, don't feel like you have to be put on the spot and can't answer. And then there's, you can pick like things like you say, like Stern Fighter. Like the, I have seen some people play like taciturn characters or whatever, but that the sort of character that you see in movies and films that like doesn't say something very often, but when they do, it's like a diamond. Yeah. So you can kind of keep your own counsel, and every now and again, when you feel like you can insert it because you've been thinking about it for an hour or two, you can pull off your like your killer line, or you can, you know, come up with some quip or a bit of backstory that you've been thinking and chewing mm-hmm. on for a bit of a while. Mm-hmm. That all works fine. It does. You reminded me about, uh, you were talking about Guy then. I, I forgot to mention uh, our mate Matt, uh, Steamforge Matt. He has his little house rule for D&D. He has many house rules for many things, does Matt. <laughs> You're not right. <laughs> so he's got a big house. And uh, he says, if you want to take a short rest in D&D, which is like your recharge bit where you get your abilities back, and you can like you can play D&D badly and just try and spam that button just to get your hit points back. It's very annoying because there's no narrative to it. He insists that whenever you make camp, two of the characters at the table have to have a bit of a dialogue between themselves. And what he's hoping for is that bit out of Pulp Fiction where you've got Jules and uh, John Travolta's character having a chat about Cheese Royale. You know, just a nonsense piece of conversation that colours in a little bit of the setting. And, you know, originally it was like, oh, Matt, why are you making us do this? Can't we just have a hit dice and get on with it? And he doesn't make everyone do it. It's just like, has anybody got anything to say? So, you know, eventually someone pipes up and you go like, uh, how do you take your tea? Because we're sitting around a campfire. And you go, well, you know, phew, Christ, ever since that incident back on the uh, on the last moon day, you, I, I don't drink tea at all, as you know. And it's like, really? And then something comes out of that. And it's not always like that, believe you me. Sometimes it's just like, did good in that fight back then. Cheers. Clink. And then we go back to the game. <laughs> but by making you do that, it pushes you slightly out of your comfort zone because you sometimes, when you're not comfortable, you just want to look down at character and look at the numbers and so on. But words are what games are made out of. And stories come out of like bouncing off of each other and improvising a little bit or planning it out in advance if it's some clever quips and you just want to note them down in advance and then you bring those in and then suddenly you've got a catchphrase and that's part of the setting too. But it, it does help to get poked. And Matt's not too, he's not evil about it. He doesn't like hold back your hit dice if you don't have something interesting to contribute. He's not horrible like that. We're going to get the hit dice anyway. It's just a chance for us to insert our characters into the setting and make it well, make it become more alive. Yes. Yeah. So all, all the sort of games I've mentioned, things like uh, free league games quite often, face them, for example. To get your conditions back, you can spend a scene with another character just talking mm. about something. So that's exactly the thing that you talk about that, you know, Matt's invented a rule that already exists, not for the first time. You <laughs> 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 love that. A wave to Matt. Um, but yeah, that, that I know what you mean. Like, a lot of people do find it uncomfortable. And, and certainly in D&D style games, a lot of people just want to say, oh, can I just get my head by spot from a sore rest? It's, it's not that onerous once you get into it, honestly, trust us, just to put a couple of words around it. Like what sandwiches have you packed that day, or yeah. you know, have you got blood all over them now because of that 
goblin that exploded next year or some like just some little detail. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think when people talk like we talk about background or backstory or introducing more character, people have like the idea of like a, a whole act of a play or something. It doesn't. It can be a couple of lines. Yeah. It can really just. But like, try and do a little callback to something that, that happened in the last fight, or that's going to happen in the next scene that you think, mm-hmm. or you know, maybe worried about going to see the Diamio at the, the Samurai's Castle or whatever it might be. Maybe you voice that. Maybe you've got some clan enmity for that particular clan or something that you can just bring up and ah. Oh, you know, my, my father was killed by the crab in that battle 40 years ago. I've never felt right about it since. Mm. Boom, done, that's it. You don't need to expand too much more on that, but immediately there's like a little bit of extra depth to the tapestry of your character. Yeah, and it's more depth to the tapestries of everyone's game. I'm really guilty of not paying enough attention to other people because I'm often thinking about what I'm going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> Just waiting for you to be quiet so I can get my bit in. It's the story of our podcast. But anyway, when you're playing a, a game around a table or around a virtual table, listen in for what those other guys are saying um, because it's not just a conversation between that player and that GM. It's for everybody to own. It doesn't have to be the GM, and it, and it often is, and for, for good reason. But it could be anyone. It could be anyone. You're looking for connections. You're looking to build upon things. Ask questions of other characters around you. You know, you're all facilitators of a game. And... Uh, yeah, don't judge people too harshly on whatever their answers are. It doesn't matter if they're if the, if you think it might be a bit flat or whatever. You don't have to criticise people for it. Don't judge them. Just go, okay, cool. And then everybody moves along because there should be loads and loads of loads of little nuggets on the table at the end of the session, like your Agon campaign, which is not written down in any books anywhere at all, but you've all got great memories of the things that were contributed with people's mannerisms and challenges and decision points and dilemmas and uh, victories and defeats and that's that's where storytelling in games for me really comes to life when you can look backwards at the story not when you're looking forwards like you have to if you're writing a book or directing a movie the story is what happened as a result of you guys all doing your thing yeah exactly so that like if you speak to any Mayagon players they will all know if you say like the scholar or the scribe mm. they will instantly know and have a story about him because it's just one of those memorable things that came out of the game. Nice. You know, much more. I couldn't tell you anything about the Theros game I'm playing. <laughs> well, I can't. That's a lie. I can't think of some things, but they're not. They weren't necessarily personal to what we did. There yeah. were things that happened in the background. It's like watching a cutscene in a computer game where you're pressing the button, trying to find the button is to skip the scene because mm-hmm. you want to get back to playing it again, mm-hmm. not watching what some other people spent days in their lives doing. Uh, I guess the other thing to quickly mention before we wrap up then is uh, growth in characters as well. Like we said, like you don't have to have them flashed out, and uh, you don't, for sure. In fact, it's better if you, if you go half-baked into the game and learn as you, as you play. But don't be frightened of growing or changing. If four sessions in, uh, I've decided that my vampire is really brutal, it, that's just a really boring way of playing, and I'm sick of it. Like You can have some sort of epiphany. You can chat to the characters and have a heart-to-heart, or you can mm. go through, through some other kind of transformation and start to change his ways. Yep. And, and you can do that with any of your campaigns for any of your characters. Like, it's better if they do grow. Uh, we've played some, like Shadow of the Demon Lord, I think we played over 10 or 11 sessions it is. And it was cool, it was great. Most people's characters changed and grew as we went. And one character didn't. And that just felt like a missed opportunity because it was still the same character it was at the start. Mm. And we'd all been on massive journeys. So, yeah, don't be frightened of like changing what you said. And it turns out that you weren't the captain of the Wingslands because you lied about that to try and impress people but it turns out you, you never were in the army at all mm-hmm. or whatever it needs to be for your story like that just that's just another layer yeah don't feel tied into anything you can always change it later that sort of stuff's baked into the original games mm. you know where you get to like ninth level and you start having a stronghold that kind of thing and it disappeared for a long time and and sometimes a game can just feel about like i've gone up a level therefore i've got some googles on my character sheet and the numbers got bigger etc etc but you know change is a good thing no, it doesn't have to be mechanical change like multi-classing or anything else like that but just the way that you know human beings change all the time don't they they go through jobs and marriages and homes and you know all of that kind of stuff ill health all of those things are part of the rich tapestry of life you don't chuck them all into session one get to know your character before you change him but i think i was mentioning earlier about like seasons of tv a new season is always a chance to have a new take on something isn't it and to yeah. sort of you know, one of you turns to the bad side. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a classic old old storytelling trope. Go for that, and then maybe get redeemed 
nothing wrong with that. We're definitely playing Star Wars now, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, there's no end of TV series I can I can recall that didn't find the feet until the second series. Correct. Yeah. You know, Parks and Rec's one, for example, it spent six episodes, didn't know what it was doing, and it only really started from <laughs> second the second series on. But there's tons of these examples. Or was it um, the West Wing, where one of the characters just completely disappeared after the yeah. first series, and yeah. I didn't know it, notice until someone told me. Mm-hmm. And apparently it's a meme or something, or there's a, a phrase for it. But I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. I've never known she disappeared, but she did. Yeah. So yeah, you, you can change stuff and uh, everything will work out fine. And similarly, in West Wing, the president in the West Wing was only supposed to be a very bit part player, a cameo in that role. Um, and then after a little bit of testing and a bit of writing, it then becomes the thing that the whole thing grows around. And how many squires have you had in your Pendragon campaign who become the best character in the game? Most of them, to be honest. Yeah, But you can't write them like that in advance. That has to happen in play. Absolutely. Right, we're, we're, we're out of time, probably over time, because we've, we've been talking as we will, growing, developing, changing as we go. So uh, it only now remains to say thank you very much to all our patrons, all our listeners, everyone who comes up to a convention and says, you know, thanks for the podcast, we're enjoying it. We do appreciate you all listening. Thanks very much. If you can throw a dollar our way, that helps with the internet costs. If you can't, just tell other people about it, sharing with your friends or downloading it on your podcatcher app, all helps with the algorithms. Yeah, I need a couple of quid to get a new pot plant for my stateroom. Apparently, it's important. Yeah, I haven't got any. Never mind a new one. Right. Huh, you haven't got one. Notes it down. (laughs) Until next time, dear listeners, from us and our pot plants, goodbye.